Wednesday, January 16th, 2013, episode number 33 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Nation Today podcast, hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, published every Wednesday on footballnation.com, and for your downloading convenience in the iTunes store, please subscribe to the Football Nation Today podcast and the other shows available on footballnation.com in the iTunes store. If you have yet to do so, I want to start off the show this week by giving a round of applause to you folks, the listeners. That's right, the much-coveted Reamer round of applause right there. I know it sounded pretty lame, but it's not lame, because last week, uh, episode number 32 of Football Nation Today was the most listened to and most commented show we've ever had here, and we've been doing this since last May, so we want to thank you all for that, and we hope to carry the great momentum from last week with the listenership and participation into this week and throughout the rest of the postseason. It's great to know that I'm not just talking into the abyss, uh, truly. I love it when the show is as listened to and as it was last week. I really thank you guys for all that. Uh, This week, of course, is Championship Week, NFC title game, 49ers-Falcons, AFC title game, Ravens-Patriots. We will preview those games at length coming up in the first down segment. Also in the first down segment, going to take a look back at the highlights and lowlights in some cases from Divisional Weekend. It is Wednesday, the midweek point, so a lot has already been said about these matchups, but last week we spent a lot of time talking about Peyton Manning and his uh, mediocre at best, and I'm being kind now with his 9-11 and career postseason record, uh, playoff track record. Uh, not a lot of other people were talking about it. Didn't hear it mentioned much on ESPN and other national outlets last week. And what happened, of course, last Saturday? Manning and the Broncos, of course, lost. A lot of interesting notes to come out of that game. Not just specific to Manning, by the way. A lot of things with that Broncos team. So we'll talk about that in the first down segment as well. Second down segment, biggest off-field NFL story of the week. For the third consecutive week, we're going to use it as our coaching carousel segment. Uh, Talk about some coaching hires made over the past couple days across the league. Uh, Some changes in coordinators in some key spots. And also one general manager's job that remains toxic. Third down segment, it's the big up slowdown segment. Talking about everything from uh, the Cowboys and Texans QB situations. And how enviable or not enviable they may be. Uh, Robert Griffin underwent surgery last week, reportedly went fine, begs the question, are career-ending injuries now a thing of a past for guys in the prime of their careers, with medicine being where it is, and also Raven special, team, uh, Raven special teamer Brendan Ayanbidejo uh, trolled Patriots fans on Twitter last week, bringing up everything from Spygate to 18-1. Horrible decision or a wise move? We'll debate that. Then the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant. I've been avoiding talking about the Jets for months, but I just got to say a little something about Tim Tebow. I do. I do. And I promise it will be short and sweet and to the point. And maybe you'll even enjoy it. We'll be right back. My name is Alex Reamer, Football Nation Today. So starting off here with a recap from the divisional round, Talking about the Ravens and Broncos game, a terrific ball game last Saturday night. In my opinion, the game of the weekend and maybe one of the best games in NFL playoff history. It was that good. Um, from start to finish, not not a moment was lacking for drama there. Uh, Peyton Manning, as I said at the top, is now 9-11 in his career in the postseason. He is 1-4 in the divisional round following a bye week. And has lost his first playoff game now 8 out of 12 times. 8 out of 12 times Peyton Manning has lost his first playoff game. And last week, leading up to this matchup, didn't hear a lot of people talking about Peyton Manning's less than stellar and frankly downright mediocre playoff track record. And I was still on winter break from school last week, so trust me, I watched a lot of ESPN and didn't have much else to do all day. And I didn't hear one analyst, never mind harp on the point, but even really bring up the point that Manning's postseason track record, far less than stellar, and frankly now with a 9-11 career postseason record, 
losing in his first playoff game 8 out of 12 times, 1-4 in the divisional round following a bye. Uh, downright mediocre, if not even a little worse than that. And of course the loss last week is not solely on Manning, but it just hammers home the point, which we talked about last week, that he shrinks in the playoffs more times than he doesn't. He made some nice throws, you know, throughout the game. He made a nice throw to Brandon Stokely, made a great throw to Noshan Moreno, which resulted in a touchdown. But at the end of the day, you look at the box score, the Ravens scored 17 points off of Manning turnovers. I understand the first interception hit off his receiver. I understand the fumble shouldn't have been a fumble. Tuck rule should have been implemented there. But still, I mean, the Ravens scored 17 points off Manning turnovers. That just can't happen. Your franchise quarterback cannot give up the ball like that. And the last interception in the second overtime was a throw that rookies don't even make. I mean, it was a throw that Manning never makes. You never see Peyton Manning make a throw like that, make a decision like that. Except, of course, when a playoff game is on the line. And then Manning, pardon my crass language here, but he pees down his leg and makes a throw like that. Running to his right, across his body, eyes not on his receiver, just lobs it up there. And it gets intercepted and sets up the game-winning field goal for the Ravens. I mean, Peyton Manning never, ever makes a throw like that, never makes a decision like that, except, of course, when a playoff game is on the line. And then, like Brett Favre, all hands are on deck. Anything is possible. But it wasn't just the interception that Manning threw. It wasn't just the three turnovers. It was really the play calling and his overall approach to that game. To paraphrase Bill Belichick from last week, you don't win a war by staying in your foxhole. Well, on Saturday night against the Ravens, at home, the Broncos stayed in their John Foxhole. <laughs> I know, that was, that was too easy. Come on. I know, you're rolling your eyes out there, but give it to me. That was too easy. I had to do it. It was a layup. I was wide open. Come on. Uh, but, look, the offensive game plan, Mike McCoy, the former offensive coordinator, now looks like new Chargers head coach, deserves some blame. John Fox certainly deserves some blame as head coach. But a lot of blame for the offense has to fall on the quarterback, Peyton Manning. Because Manning, make no mistake about it, has the power to say no, Coach Fox, or no, Coach McCoy. Uh, we're not going to run it here with Ronnie Hillman. I'm going to throw and try to get a first down to end this game. Or no, we're not going to kneel with 30 seconds to go in regulation and two timeouts in our back pocket. I'm going to try to throw and set up a field goal here to win this game. Manning has the power to overrule his coaches. Manning himself said he even checked down into some running plays late in that game. This is Peyton Manning's offense. And he didn't have the foresight, he didn't have the balls, frankly, to try to end that game with time winding down the fourth quarter. Broncos had the two-minute warning. All they needed was one first down, game over, Ravens don't even see the ball again. And what do they do? What does Manning call into? Or what does Manning refuse to, um, refuse to, uh, refuse to call out of? Running plays. They give it to Ronnie Hillman three times. The Broncos on Saturday ran the ball 41 times for 125 yards. For those keeping score at home, that's three yards per carry. With Peyton Manning as your quarterback, you're going to run it 41 times for 125 yards in total? Three yards per run? Really? As I said, they kneeled down with 30 seconds to go and two timeouts in their back pocket. Peyton Manning doesn't want to go to the front line, to continue with the war analogy, at the end of playoff games. He wants to stay in his foxhole. And that's the way the Broncos approached the game on Saturday. That's the way John Fox approached it. That's the way Mike McCoy approached it. And most of all, that's the way quarterback Peyton Manning approached it. And this is mostly on Peyton Manning. Because at the end of the day, this is Peyton Manning's offense. He makes the calls at the line of scrimmage. And Peyton Manning didn't audible out of running plays. He even checked down to some running plays. He admitted himself in his post-game press conference on Saturday. When the going gets tough... In the playoffs, more times than not, Peyton Manning does not get going. And it wasn't just the interception in the second overtime. It wasn't the Ravens just scoring 17 points off Manning turnovers. Most of all to me, it was the conservative approach. And frankly, 
playing not to lose. The Broncos didn't play to win. They played not to lose. And they paid the price. They stayed in their foxhole. Peyton Manning stayed in his foxhole. And, you know, given the kind of throws he's prone to make, as we saw in the second OT, I'm not sure if I blame him. But still, that's the biggest thing I get out of the Broncos game. Not just the interception Manning threw in the second overtime, but the overall offensive approach. Terrible. Playing not to lose instead of playing to win. And the Broncos' defense was awful, too. I mean, this is an all-on Manning in the offense. At the end of the day, they did score 35 points. The defense was atrocious. I mean, how do you get beaten over the top three times? Twice Torrey Smith beat Champ Bailey, and the Broncos didn't think to double-team Smith. Jack Dario got completely outcoached in that game. And then at the end, I mean, that throw to Jacoby Jones down the right sideline, how do you not have a safety helping over the top? I mean... That's the one thing you have to guard against in that situation. The 70-plus yard touchdown pass. Or however long it was. And yet the Broncos couldn't do it. Elvis Dumerville and Von Miller were invisible in that game as well. So just a real bad defensive effort by the Broncos on Saturday night against the Ravens. So I go to the Packers and the, uh, Packers and the 49ers. We'll talk about San Francisco in the NFC Championship game. So, just briefly about the Packers. They proved to be a flawed team on Saturday night. Uh, you don't have to have a great defense to win anymore in the NFL, as the, Bron as the Packers showed, excuse me, when they won the Super Bowl in 2010. But you have to have a defense that's capable of doing something, that's capable of making a couple of big plays. It's capable of making a couple of big stops. And the Packers were incapable of doing that against the 49ers. Their secondary has been a weak point for them all season long. It was bad on Saturday night. Uh, they were unable to adjust to Colin Kaepernick. And plus, they made a lot of mistakes. I mean, not just on defense, but on special teams, too. They had punt returner Jeremy Ross drop that punt deep into Green Bay territory. Next play, boom, Kaepernick to Crabtree. Touchdown for the Niners, uh, converting off of turnovers. Uh, the Packers played a real bad game on Saturday, and they paid the price. Uh, Colin Kaepernick played... One of the best games in recent memory. He threw for 263 yards, rushed for 181 yards, threw for two touchdown passes, ran for two touchdown passes as well. I've been saying it all along. I'm rarely, I'm rarely right, so let me bask in my glory for a moment here. Uh, Kaepernick is far more dynamic than Alex Smith can ever dream to be. And you saw that on Saturday night. I mean, with Smith, the 49ers were a team that always looked to win in the 20s. But now with Kaepernick... They can still win that low-scoring game because they have that defense, but they can now score with you. You know, they can go up against the Green Bay Packers and say, we're not worried about ball control because we know we can score with you. I don't care if you have Aaron Rodgers. We have Colin Kaepernick and now a diverse offensive attack, a dynamic offensive attack. So we can score in the 30s with you as well if you want to play that game. The Niners can beat you pretty much any way, which we'll talk about more on the NFC Championship game preview with Kaepernick now under center. Uh, as far as the Seahawks and Falcons go, uh, I'm real impressed with Seattle. It's hard not to be. Uh, after they came back from that 20-point deficit, uh, Russell Wilson really matured in the second half of the season into the playoffs, had that big win two weeks ago at Washington, where the Seahawks were also down in the second half. Um, it was a great year for Seattle. They blew through expectations. Offense really impressed. Went above and beyond what anyone thought they were capable of with a rookie quarterback. Uh, next year's the big year, though, for Pete Carroll in Seattle. He's been there a couple of seasons, several seasons now. Uh, made the postseason twice. He's won a couple of playoff games. But next year's the year. They still have that great defense. Chris Clemens will be back. He was out for the game against Atlanta, which maybe was a difference in that one. Uh, the offense will be expected to be good as well. Russell Wilson will be in his second year. Uh, those receivers, another year older. Golden Tate and those guys. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on the Seahawks next season. Uh, they will be expected to succeed, as they should be. They have a real good roster over there on both sides of the football. Uh, the Falcons' defense almost gave it up in the second half. Absolutely horrible, playing on their heels. Uh, Matt Ryan wasn't so great in the fourth quarter either. I mean, in his three drives, in his three drives, excuse me, before the last one, which set up the field goal, uh, he went three and out, interception, three and out. Not impressive. I mean, the Falcons, I mean, the Broncos peed down their legs, and Peyton Manning peed down his leg, and Matt Ryan and the Falcons almost joined them on Sunday afternoon. But Ryan made two big throws down the stretch. Matt Bryant nailed the kick. 
I thought Seattle, a couple of poor defensive calls there at the end. Didn't get up on Harry Douglas, nor did they get up on Tony Gonzalez. A lot of nice plays there to set up the field goal. I think Pete Carroll would have liked to have those two defensive calls back. Uh, and Matt Bryant nailed the field goal at the end. And I loved what the Falcons did. Um, Seahawks, of course, called timeout to try to ice the kicker, but the Falcons kicked it anyway. I mean, and that's the way to do it. You know, you don't worry about stopping the play if the other team's going to call a timeout. What you got to do is you just got to kick the football. Because, I mean, what's going to happen? It's not a penalty, and it's going to happen so quickly, you're going to only kick it a second or a second and a half after the timeout is called. And what, is the referee going to jump up and try to block it? No. So there's nothing to lose by just going through the kick anyway and taking it as a practice kick, which Matt Bryant and the Falcons did on Sunday. And, of course, they won the game. He nailed the game-winning field goal when it was time to kick it for real. As far as Texans-Patriots go, I think the storyline of this one for Houston is simple. Uh, the Texans are a good, not great team. And they really did the best they could against the Patriots last Sunday. I thought they kept it close in the first half. The game was over when Rob Ninkovich made that interception. And the Patriots scored on the very next possession. Brady found Brandon Lloyd in the end zone. Uh, Houston just didn't make adjustments. I mean, they weren't ready for the hurry-up offense, which the Patriots ran after pretty much every big play, especially when they got into the red zone. The unathletic Wes Welker, to quote Wade Phillips, tore up the Texans because Phillips refused to double-team him. Uh, and in the first game against the Texans, last December, uh, this past December, Brady went 11 for 17 against pressure with a QB rating north of 120. On Sunday... Brady went 11 for 17 against pressure with a QB rating also north of 120. You don't blitz Tom Brady. He is too good to blitz. He will find the open receiver. He will not be phased. The key to beating Brady and the Patriots is generating pressure by only sending your front three or four guys and then dropping everyone else back in pass coverage. The Texans didn't learn their lesson from December. They blitzed Brady 17 times once again on Sunday, and once again, Brady lit them up. You don't blitz Brady. Maybe Wade Phillips will get that the third time around if the Texans and Patriots are to meet again while he's still on as defensive coordinator. So, the Patriots and Ravens will meet in the AFC Championship game this Sunday night in Foxborough. It is the seventh time in the Bill Belichick-Tom Brady era that the Patriots find themselves in the AFC Championship game. Just unbelievable when you think about it. I mean, Brady's, what, been a starter for 11, 12 years? Been in the AFC Championship game more than half of his seasons in the league as a starter. Just unbelievable when you sit back and really evaluate it all. And we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, if the Patriots are to make it to the Super Bowl for the second consecutive season. But... It really seems as if the Patriots dynasty has gotten a bit of a rebirth here. You know, I mean, they've had a few real good draft classes over the past three seasons with Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez and Steven Ridley and on defense, Gerard Mayo, Brandon Spikes, Devin McCourty. It really seems as if the Patriots are in a second wind here with their dynasty and they've made their second consecutive AFC title game, seventh overall in the Belichick-Brady era looking to go back to the Super Bowl for the second straight year and for the sixth time overall under Belichick and Brady. And I do think the Patriots will win the Super Bowl. It is inevitable. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady will win another Super Bowl together, folks. It'll just have to happen another year. That's right. I'm picking the Ravens on Sunday. And it's a tough pick game to pick. It's really a pick 'em game. I don't know what Vegas is thinking with the nine-point spread. To me, like almost all Patriots and Ravens games, this will come down to the final possession. And I just have a feeling the Ravens may break through here. Now, matchup-wise, the Rob Gronkowski injury really hurts. He's out for the rest of the postseason, re-injured that forearm, had another surgery on it following the game last Sunday against the Texans. Uh, and that hurts because this is going to be a physical game, as all games against this Ravens defense are. And as we saw against the 49ers in December, the Patriots offense, when they're without Gronkowski, uh, lack a bit of a physical element to them. In the blocking game, the passing game, every facet of the offense. I mean, Aaron Hernandez is a terrific receiving tight end, but not nearly as physical 
as Gronkowski is. So, I think the Gronkowski injury really hurts here from a matchup perspective. I think that may allow the Ravens to bully the Patriots a little bit on offense. Um, Joe Flacco is certainly mediocre. And that's why this is really a tough game for me to pick. But what's Flacco's strength as a quarterback? After watching the game against the Broncos last week, you would have to say it's throwing the ball deep. And the Patriots gave up the most big plays out of any team in the league this year. If there's one area where you want to try to exploit the Patriots, it's testing their secondary. Attack their secondary. Try to throw it up there and get some big plays. Find some matchups that you like. The Ravens did a great job of it against the Broncos. They identified the Torrey Smith-Champ-Bailey matchup and took advantage of it for two touchdown passes. They found Jacoby Jones at the end when they realized there was no safety help over the top. That's the strength of the Ravens' offense. And I think half of it is luck. You know, Flacco just chucks it up there and either uh, Anquan Bolden or Jacoby Jones or Torrey Smith makes a you know, terrific play on it. But still, that's where you have to attack the Patriots. Try to exploit the secondary. Go deep on them. Spread them out. And I think the Ravens will try to do that on Sunday. Or at least they should if they're smart. The Patriots now for a couple weeks have had trouble defending kickoffs. Daniel Manning had a couple long returns for Houston last Sunday. Jacoby Jones is the best kick returner in the game. He's on the all-pro team as a kick returner. But this isn't Joe Flacco beating Tom Brady. You know, I mean, it's such a quarterback league now. And I'm guilty of it too, really only paying attention to the quarterbacks. But it's not Joe Flacco beating Tom Brady. That's not how I choose to look at it. It's the Ravens beating the Patriots. And you look at Tom Brady, he's had his two worst playoff performances against the Ravens. One came in 2009 when he threw three interceptions in the Baltimore blowout. And the other one came last season in the AFC title game. Yeah, the Patriots won the game, but Brady didn't throw a touchdown pass. The Ravens' defense for the past five years has been able to rattle Brady. His two worst playoff performances have come against Baltimore. So that's the matchup component of it and why I'm leaning towards picking the Ravens in this game. From an intangible aspect, and this is tougher to quantify, obviously, but I still think it matters, and maybe I'm sucker for a sucker for the swagger, I am in a lot of sports, a little less so than baseball because I think it's so different, but, you know, I think the Ravens are on a bit of a roll. They've won two consecutive postseason games now beating Andrew Luck and Peyton Manning. As I mentioned, they always play the Patriots tough. I mean, every meeting since 2007 between these two teams has been a one-possession game, except the playoffs in 2009, which was a Baltimore blowout, when Flacco only completed four passes, by the way, which, again... Leads me to the point, it's the Ravens being the Patriots, not Flacco beating Brady. I mean, just look at last year's AFC Championship game. If Lee Evans holds on to the football in the end zone, or Billy Cundiff makes a 31-yard field goal, the Ravens either win or tie that game. I mean, and John, and John Harbaugh is not going to not have his field goal unit ready this time around. I mean, he had kicker Justin Tucker uh, take a practice kick in between overtimes last week at Denver. So the Ravens are covering all of their bases. They'll be ready this year for that situation. We will not have another Billy Cundiff situation where the field goal kicker and field goal unit is not ready. So, you know, I think the law of averages might have to work out here where it's been so close every time these two teams have played. Last year's game was so close. I think eventually the Ravens pull through here one last time. With the same unit, with Ed Reed, with Ray Lewis, with Terrell Suggs, with Haloti Nada. And this is a slower Ravens defense. It's not as good a Ravens defense. And even without Gronkowski, the Patriots offense can still exploit the Ravens on defense. Use Aaron Hernandez against the linebacker. Use Shane Vereen against the linebacker. Vereen caught a touchdown pass against Houston last week. He was matched up one-on-one -on -one against the linebacker. Uh, use the hurry-up offense. Try to get this Ravens defense out of breath. You know, they played two overtime periods and, you know, negative and, and seven-degree temperatures in Denver last week. Uh, this Ravens defense is slower than they have been, and they may not be able to stop the Patriots. I don't think the Ravens will be able to score 30. And if the Patriots score 30, I think they'll win. But I just think the Ravens have a real good shot 
at holding the Patriots in the 20s here. And every single season since 2007, this new era of Patriots football, the high-flying, high-throwing era of Patriots football, every year since 2007 in the playoffs, the Patriots have eventually run into a team that holds them in the 20s and beats them. In 2007, it waited until the Giants in the Super Bowl. In 09, it was Baltimore. In 2010, it was the Jets. Last year, it was the Giants in the Super Bowl. Eventually, the Patriots run up to a team that's just a little more physical than they are, that holds their offense to the high teens, low 20s. And maybe this is the year it doesn't happen. Eventually, you have to think offense is going to win out with the way the league is trending. But I don't know. It hasn't happened yet with the Patriots. And this could be Ray Lewis's last game. And something tells me, you know, I mean, the Texans with the hurry-up offense had no idea what to do. That won't happen to the Ravens. You know that Ray Lewis, Terrell Suggs, Ed Reed, Bernard Pollard, even these guys are not going to get fooled by the hurry-up offense. You know, I mean, here's how you stop the Patriots' hurry-up offense. How about calling a timeout? You know, especially in the first half when timeouts aren't as critical. Call a timeout. Treat it like a basketball game where you're trying to stop the other team's momentum. Or tie your shoe. Fake injury. There are a lot of crafty ways to slow down the hurry-up offense. The Texans couldn't think of any. The Ravens will think of some. Trust me, they will. I think they'll be ready for that. It's a pick em kind of game. I don't know what Vegas is thinking making this a nine-point spread. And the Patriots could very well win. I can see a lot of scenarios in which the Patriots win this game on Sunday and go back to the Super Bowl. But I don't know. Without Gronkowski, some of the matchups I talked about, and really the intangible aspect of it. Every time these two teams play, it's a one-possession game. And not a one-possession game where, you know, the team dies out on the 20 with three minutes to go and then the other team's just kneeling down. No, like, a one-possession game where... Like, a guy drops a ball in the end zone, or a kicker misses a chip shot field goal, or something really fluky happens at the end of these games. I, you know, it's, every time it's neck and neck, and last year's ASU championship game was that way, and I, I just think, with the law of averages, the Ravens are maybe due to breakthrough. And you can disagree with me if you want, and I hope I'm wrong. I'm here in New England, I want to see the Patriots make it to the Super Bowl for the sixth time under Brady and Belichick. But I just think this is a perfect storm in a lot of ways for the Ravens. I think they have a damn good shot to win this game on Sunday. I can't wait to see it. As far as the 49ers and Falcons go, uh, this game I don't think will be much of a contest, frankly. Whoever wins Patriots-Ravens is going to win it in the final possession. I'm convinced of that. 49ers-Falcons, I think this is a blowout, really. And by that I mean a two-possession game, you know, not a four-possession game. But I think the 49ers win this game comfortably. The Falcons ran the ball well last week with Michael Turner and Jacquez Rogers, but this week they're going to go up against Alden Smith, Justin Smith, Navarro Bowman, Patrick Willis. Mm. I don't think the Falcons are running against the Niners this week, or if they are, they're not going to do it with much success. And the 49ers can match the Falcons point for point. You know, that's what I was talking about earlier, how the Niners can beat you in a variety of ways. It's in the Dome. Matt Ryan and the Falcons are going to want to air it out. And they're going to score their points, even against a defense as good as San Francisco's is. They're probably going to score their points at home. The 49ers can match the Falcons. We saw it last week. They scored 40-plus points against the Packers. Michael Crabtree has become a big weapon. Vernon Davis is one of the toughest guys to cover in the league. Frank Gore, with Kaepernick in the read option, is even tougher to stop than he once was. The 49ers have become the best team in football. And they have a damn good quarterback, too. Colin Kaepernick is a damn good QB. He's on the verge right now of being an elite QB. I firmly believe that. He's unreal, this guy. And if you saw the game on Saturday night, you know what I'm talking about. If the game's going to be played in the 20s, the Niners can win that one. And if the game's going to be played in the high 30s or low 40s, guess what? The Niners can win that game, too. I think they will. No matter how the game goes, the 49ers will find a way to beat the Falcons. They're the best team in football right now. So the AFC Championship game, I think, will be a nail-biter. I'm leaning Ravens in that game. I think the Ravens pull it out. 
The NFC Championship game, I really think it's San Francisco's to lose, even though they're on the road. I think the Niners right now are the best all-around team in football. Second down segment, that's where we look at the biggest off-field story of the week. And this week, once again, it's a coaching carousel. A nice way to break this all in, because certainly a lot to talk about once again. The Browns have hired Rob Chudzinski as their new head coach, and reportedly Nerv Turner is coming on as their offensive coordinator. Uh, Chudzinski was the former offensive coordinator in Carolina, coached Cam Newton for two seasons. I would have liked to see Chudzinski have another year with Newton, because I think this third year coming up with Cam Newton is the big one for him. He had the great rookie campaign, struggled in the first half of this season, came on strong at the end, but can he put it together? for a full season? Can the Panthers' offense put it together for a full season? I would have liked to see what Shadzinski could have done there for a third full season with Newton. So I think it was maybe a year early in hiring him, but ultimately, you're the Cleveland Browns. You're running out of options. Chip Kelly's going back to college. Brian Kelly's going back to college. Bill O'Brien isn't coming from Penn State. Who else are you going to turn to? I mean, what, are we just going to say something's a bad hire because we don't know the guy's name? If that's what this is about, then it's a worthless exercise. You know, is Rob Chudzinski going to be coach of the Browns eight years from now? Uh, no, I wouldn't bet my but I wouldn't bet $5 on it. You know, I, don't, I don't know. No, he's not. Is it a bad hire? I'm not ready to say that. Why? Just because I never heard of the guy before? I don't know. I don't think that. I mean, if that's what this is, then what the hell are we talking about? Oh, I heard of him, so he's a good hire. I haven't heard of him. Bad hire. And what are we doing here? Coaches come from different places. So I'm, I'm not going to look at it like that. Uh, I will say here the Chargers are reportedly moving in on Mike McCoy as of this recording. And I don't like this hire. Uh, because, number one, I don't like the conservative game plan the Broncos had last week. Yes, Manning deserves the bulk of that plan. But McCoy deserves some of it, too. And I don't think Mike McCoy should get a lot of credit for the Broncos' offense this year. Uh, that's Peyton Manning's offense. I'd give McCoy more credit for what he was able to do with Tim Tebow last season. Fine, we can do that. But I think it's an early hire for the Chargers. I do. And they're another team that's running out of options. But, I don't know. Not so impressed with Mike McCoy. Uh, many people were impressed with Brian Kelly, who is staying put at Notre Dame, which leaves the Philadelphia Eagles in the dust. And maybe that's for the better. I don't know how well Kelly would have translated to the NFL. Big red-faced guy yelling and jumping up and down on the sidelines, which plays well in college with the fighting Irish, but in the pros, I don't know, they might say, please, dude, you know, your face burning up a little bit over there. You know, put your gum back in your mouth. Don't pick it up from the ground there. You, you drop something, guy. Uh, but that leaves the Eagles in the dust because Brian Kelly was reportedly high on their wish list. Uh, Lovey Smith has already interviewed. They're interviewing Ken Wissenhunt and Brian Billick. You have to wonder if owner Jeff Warrior's devotion to Howie Roseman as GM is turning some candidates away. And that, I think, could be a real factor here because a lot of big-time coaches want to bring in their own front office guys. And if the owner is forcing the coach to work with Roseman, the GM, who Andy Reid, of course, infamously had troubles getting along with at the end, uh, that could be a big stumbling block here. But it is a little peculiar that with all the jobs that have been filled, uh, the Eagles coaching job is still out there. And the Bears coaching job is still out there, too. Uh, reports were they were closing in on Mark Tressman, but he's denied those rumors. And those are two really good jobs. I mean, the Bears and Eagles, those are two premier franchises. A uh, good year for coaching openings. You know, I think the Chiefs, we talked about last week, are certainly in a rebuilding phase. But that's still a stable, hallmark franchise. San Diego's a great place to live. Good for Mike McCoy. At least he gets to move to San Diego. And... Try to resurrect Phillip Rivers. Uh, so it makes sense the Chargers would bring in another offensive guy there. And the Eagles and Bears, I mean, those are two premier franchises in the league. So still some good coaching vacancies out there. Uh, I'll tell you one job that is toxic, though. And that is the Jets' general manager's job. This is a toxic position. And I have proof of it. David Caldwell was an assistant in the Falcons' front office to Thomas Dimitrov. And... He chose the Charger, uh, the Jaguars, excuse me, over the Jets. David Caldwell chose the Jaguars, the Jacksonville Jaguars, GM opening over the Jetses. And I think that's because the new GM with the Jets doesn't have a lot of power. He won't get to pick his head coach. Woody Johnson 
is forcing whoever his new GM is to keep Rex Ryan on his coach for at least a year. And that's not the way to do it. You need your general manager and your head coach to work in concert with each other. You cannot force your GM to take on your coach, which Woody Johnson is forcing the next, next Jets GM to do. And oh, by the way, they still have an offensive coordinator there either. They promoted Dennis Thurman to defensive coordinator after Mike Pettin left to join the Bills and Doug Marone's staff, a move that I absolutely love. Uh, one move I don't love is Monty Kiffin at 72 years of age, the new Cowboys defensive coordinator. I think Rob Ryan caught a tough break with injuries. He was down to his fifth, sixth string linebackers. DeMarcus Ware was playing with pretty much one arm in the final month of the season for Dallas. But still, on paper, that should be a better defense than the 19th ranked defense, which they were this season. When asked for comment last week, Ryan said, I'm not worried. I'll be out of work for five minutes. <laughs> I love the Ryan brothers. They're great, aren't they? It's a better game when they're around. Uh, it's been a little longer than five minutes, but I think Rob Ryan will land on his feet. He's a good defensive coach, has a good defensive reputation around the game. Uh, but that defense is certainly underachieved, the Cowboys' defense. There's no doubt about that under Rob Ryan. I think they're more talented than the 19th, 20th ranked defense, is what they've been under him, even though they have had some injuries. Uh, but as far as Monty Kiffin goes, I don't know. Pretty funny as Sun Lane, I guess, you know, fired him from USC. Uh, but really, I mean, Monty's now 72 years old, developed the Tampa 2 defense. I know he's the architect of that, but, you know, this is without Derek Brooks and Warren Sapp and Rondé Barber. So maybe kind of a scary proposition there. But still, at 72 years old, Monty Kiffin. I mean, is this really the next great defensive mind that you need to bring in there along Jason Garrett? I mean, can you see this marriage working out, Monty Kiffin and Jason Garrett? Jason Garrett could be his grandson, for God's sakes. I mean, I don't know. I just, I look at that Cowboys coaching staff now with Monty Kiffin alongside Jason Garrett, Jerry Jones at the top, his owner, and I just don't think this is a cohesive plan. I don't think it's, I think it's throwing crap against the wall and seeing if it sticks. That's what I think about hiring Monty Kiffin at this stage right now from the Dallas Cowboys. One X factor before we move on to the third down segment about the NFL coaching carousel, uh, Josh McDaniels a couple weeks ago made it clear to teams that he would not be taking phone calls about coaching jobs, which led many, and rightfully so, to throw McDaniels out of the list. But this week it was announced the Patriots are bringing aboard former coach Brian Dable to be a wide receivers coach for the final week, if they lose against the Ravens, or a couple weeks if they make it to the Super Bowl, similarly to what the Patriots did with McDaniels last year, bringing him aboard as a special advisor to the offense and Bill O'Brien. But if you remember last year, it was already announced by the time the AFC Championship game rolled around in late January that Bill O'Brien will already or ha, ha, already announced that he would be leaving at the end of the season to take the job at Penn State. McDaniels, of course, hasn't officially announced anything, but yet the Patriots are still bringing on Dable, a former coach on their staff, former offensive coordinator this past season in Kansas City under Mangini with the Jets and Browns, to now be their wide receivers coach under while McDaniels is still here. It just leads you to think, I mean, why would the Patriots do this? Why would Dable do this? And maybe Dable's out of opportunities now, because let's be real, those Browns and Chiefs offenses recently haven't exactly bathed themselves in glory. But it's just an interesting thing to watch. I mean, maybe McDaniel said all that a couple weeks ago to take the focus off him and put it back on the Patriots, but maybe he had an agreement with the Eagles or the Bears or a team that, you know, uh, once we're out here, I mean, I'm yours. I'm very interested in this job. Don't, you know, keep me keep me at the top of your list. And when the season's over for me, we'll talk. And maybe Belichick's bringing in Dable to get him familiar with the team and the deep playoff run. And I don't know what this says about McDaniels, but I know it might say something because McDaniels coming in last year with Bill O'Brien most certainly did say something. So that's a little bit of an X-factor to look out for here, especially since, again, a job like the Eagles is still open here as we're heading up towards the end of January. So our third down segment, of course, is the Big Up Slowdown segment where I say a statement and then affirm my agreement or disagreement with it by saying Big Up or Slow Down. Big Up or Slow Down number one, Raven special teamer Brendan Ian Badejo trolled Patriots fans on Twitter this week tweeting about how the Patriots hurry-up offense is a gimmick. That's how this all started. And, of course, Patriots fans lashed out at him. So Ian Badejo came back with uh, 
talking about Spygate and how the Patriots haven't won a Super Bowl since Spygate, and they responded just 18 and 1. <laughs> that was another one of his tweets, which I thought was a pretty good one. Um, so make up or slow down. This is a horrible idea. Trash talking the Patriots and their fans, heading into Sunday's Clash of the Titans in the AFC title game. Uh, I say slow down. No, it's not a horrible idea. Because there's more than one way to skin a cat. You know, I go back to the 2010 divisional round game against the Jets, where the Jets are doing all this talking heading into the matchup, and Patriots fans talked about, oh, oh the Jets are going to bite themselves here, you know, they're gonna, you know, you can't, can't, can't get the Patriots bolted board material, and Belichick is going to use this, and no, the Jets actually wound up winning that game, proving that there's more than one way to skin a cat. I mean, if you need bulletin board material heading into a playoff matchup, especially an AFC championship game of this magnitude, you're really not doing something right. I mean, you shouldn't need bulletin board material before an AFC championship game. So it's something for the media and fans to get riled up about heading into Sunday's contest, but I don't think it should mean much. I don't think it means anything with the coaches and the players. And it just goes back to what I was talking about uh, several minutes ago when previewing the AFC title game between the Ravens and Patriots. Uh, I don't think the Ravens are intimidated here. You know, I mean, there was a wet spot under the Texans bus when it rolled into Foxborough last Sunday. Fact, there was a wet spot right under the bus. Peeing all over themselves, Houston Texans. Gary Kubiak, you know, didn't know what he was doing. The Ravens, there will be no wet spot under their bus this Sunday. I can guarantee you that. Every game these two teams have played since 2007 has been a one-possession game. The game this year was a one-point game. Except, of course, the 2009 wildcard round, which, which was a Ravens ball at victory. Ray Rice ran that touchdown run at the start, and now is it. And speaking of Ray Rice, you know, if the Ravens decide to throw to Rice and throw to Dennis Pitta and make the Patriots linebackers cover, that's another way they could exploit the Pats. Now, they haven't done that yet all season for some reason, so I don't expect that to be the game plan going in. But, you know, there are certain ways the Ravens, how they're built offensively, can attack the Patriots' defense here, too. But... From an intangible perspective, and I think these tweets by Ian Badejo show that uh, the Ravens aren't afraid of the Patriots. They just aren't. And I think that's worth a lot when you're heading into Foxborough for another AFC Championship game against Tom Brady, against Bill Belichick, against all this Patriots team is, is built up to be, against what they are. Uh, you know, Kurt Schilling said it prior to the 2001 World Series against the Yankees. You know, Mystique and Aura, uh, those are just stripper names. And what happens... D-backs went in there, beat the Yankees in seven games. The Ravens seem to be taking a similar attitude to the Patriots here. Ray Lewis's final go-around, maybe Ed Reed's final go-around as a Raven. Uh, there's just a lot at stake for the Ravens in this ballgame. I like some matchups in their favor. Both teams are banged up, but I think the Patriots are a little more banged up. I think the Gronkowski injury is a huge factor. Chandler Jones may not be healthy either, so maybe the Patriots won't get as much pressure on Joe Flacco as they may like. Uh, it's, it's going to be a real tough game, and the Ravens aren't intimidated of the Patriots. Ian Badejo's tweet shows you exactly that. Now, the Cowboys have Tony Romo as their quarterback. The Texans have Matt Schaub. Both guys are above-average quarterbacks. We can comfortably say that. So at face value, you would say, well, the Cowboys and Texans are in pretty decent QB situations, given what else is out there. So, a lot of teams may envy the Cowboys and Texans, right? Huh? I say no. Big up or slow down. The Cowboys and Texans are not an enviable QB situation. And I actually say big up here. I don't envy the Cowboys and Texans at quarterback. In fact, I would maybe almost... No. I would rather be Andy Reid with the Chiefs. With no quarterback than have to deal with Tony Romo. Because, here's the thing. Romo and Schaub as well, are good enough not to be replaced. You can't replace Romo if you're the Cowboys. You can't replace Schaub at this juncture if you're the Texans because you can do a lot worse than those guys. They'll win you games. But they're not good enough to win. Romo certainly isn't good enough to win the big one, as he showed us once again in Week 17 this year. And Schaub isn't either with the way he crapped his pants down the stretch in the final six weeks. Those are good quarterbacks, but not good enough quarterbacks to win the big one with. And that's the problem. It's like being a fifth or sixth seed in the NBA. You're good enough to make the playoffs, so you're good enough to finish way out of the lottery, but you're not good enough to win at all. 
So what are you? You're a middling team. And that's what Tony Romo and Matt Schaub are as quarterbacks. Middling quarterbacks. Good enough to win some games with. In Schaub's case, good enough to win a playoff game with. But just not good enough to take you to that next level. And the Cowboys and Texans are really stuck there. They can't make a switch at quarterback. But I think they know deep down they're not good enough there. So, big up. Though at face value, those may look like may look like enviable QB situations. I don't think they are. Final big up or slow down. Robert Griffin III had surgery last week. Reportedly, it went fine. Ball goes according to plan. He'll be playing in week one next season. I know we're a ways away from that, but big up or slow down. Are career-ending injuries for guys in their 20s a thing of the past? Now, notice the way I phrased the question. I said for guys in their 20s. And with that said, I say big up. With modern medicine being where it is, I think career-ending injuries for guys in their 20s, Robert Griffin, who's going to be 23 next month, uh, Adrian Peterson, who was in his mid to late 20s with that ACL injury last season, guys still in the prime of their careers, or in Griffin's case, not even yet entering the prime of their careers, with modern medicine being where it is, with <clears throat> the <clears throat> training being where it is today, I think career-ending injuries for these guys with the youth, with their youth, are a thing of the past. The stupider thing with Shanahan and the Redskins two weeks ago was the fact that Robert Griffin III cost them a chance to win that game last week, or two weeks ago. It was obvious. The Redskins didn't pass the 50-yard line in the second, third, or fourth quarters against Seattle wildcard weekend. So that was where Mike Shanahan and the Redskins most royally screwed up. Not necessarily Griffin's long-term health, because again, I think with modern medicine being where it is, Griffin's age being what it is, he should be fine next season. He may have to alter his game a little bit, and as we've talked about throughout the season on this show, he should alter his game. But he'll be back next year. That's not the biggest error the Redskins made. The biggest error they made, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that they cost themselves a chance to win two weeks ago with their negligence in dealing with Griffin's knee injury. So closing out the show in the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant. And I hate to do a rant here involving the Jets or Tim Tebow. I really do. It's trite. It's cliched. Everyone does it. But I listened to Mike Westhoff's interview in Miami late last week. Now the Jets' former special teams coordinator talked about how Tebow was never integrated into the offense. They didn't even practice integrating Tebow into the offense, which shows you, you know, why it was like a fire drill every time Tebow came onto the field for the Jets this season. You know, no one knew what they were doing. No one knew who was subbing out. No one knew what the formation was. It was like a fire drill, a Chinese fire drill, you know, where you try to, you know, red light, get out of the car. Everyone gets out and tries to scramble back into different seats before the light turns green. I mean, that's what it resembled whenever Tebow entered the game for the Jets, and Westhoff told you why last week in Miami in that interview, because the Jets in practice didn't even put Tebow in the game, didn't even entertain the idea of putting him in the game, which of course leads to the question, why in the world did the Jets acquire him last season? Why? What a waste of a season! And this is coming off of David Caldwell's press conference last week with the Jaguars, in which he said Tebow, or he cannot foresee a scenario, I believe was his wording, where Tim Tebow would be a Jacksonville Jaguar next season. And so I don't know what Tebow's future in the league is. I still say, and we lose track of this, and I lose track of this, and I promise this is the last thing on Tebow we'll say for a while. We haven't done a lot of Tebow this year, and I'm proud of myself for that. But this is a guy who inherited a Broncos team last year that was, what, 1-5? And he finished the season 8-8, eight and eight, made the playoffs, and actually won a playoff game against the Steelers. Tim Tebow won multiple national championships in Florida. He has earned another starting job in the NFL. He's earned it. He's earned it. I'm not saying he's going to be great. I'm not saying he'll be a starting quarterback for the rest of his career. 
I'm not projecting that. I'm not being that bold. In fact, I don't think I'm really being bold at all. I think looking at a guy like Tebow, his mentality, his character, but more importantly, way more importantly, what he accomplished as a starting quarterback in college, what he accomplished as a starting quarterback with the Broncos, winning a playoff game even last season, I think Tim Tebow deserves a chance to start as a quarterback next season. Not as a tight end, not as a fullback, not as a running back, not as a wildcat captain. No. As a quarterback, like a quarterback, you know, who goes out every play to take a snap, you know, a quarterback. Uh, I think Tebow deserves a chance to start next year. I do. And it's a shame the Jaguars look like they're not going to give him that opportunity. What, David Coswell wants another year sifting between Chad Henney and Blaine Gabbert? Okay, great for you. Because there's no hot quarterback draft in the pro- uh, no, no, There's no hot quarterback prospect in the draft this year, at least from what I can tell. Couple options in free agency, but I don't know. If, I think Alex Smith will have a few better offers out there for him than Jacksonville. Ditto for Mike Vick. Former coach Andy Reid is in Kansas City. For one, they need a QB next season. So I don't know what the Jaguars' plan is at quarterback. And not saying their long-term plan should have been Tim Tebow. I'm not even saying their plan for next November. Halfway through the season should have been Tim Tebow. But Tim Tebow deserves another chance to start in the NFL. As a quarterback. Like, you know, a real quarterback. And the Jaguars don't have one of those. And I don't see one of them out there for them to get this year. So, if I were Dave Caldwell, their new GM... I would maybe rethink my opinion. I'd bring him into camp. And not just for the fanfare, not just for the media attention, not just for the relevancy aspect, and that certainly should be weighed, but the fact that Tebow's won a lot more than he's lost as a starting quarterback. Not just in college, obviously, but in the NFL, too. So, he deserves a chance to be another starting quarterback. Not saying forever, but... For opening day next year, Tebow should be starting for a team. The Cardinals, maybe, somebody. It's a shame that as of right now, it doesn't look like he may get that chance. Because his body work at quarterback shows he deserves at least another legitimate starting opportunity. That's it on Tebow. Only three minutes at the end of the show. Not too bad. Hopefully you even thought that was a decent point. I don't know. As a quarterback, I think Tebow deserves another shot. But hopefully you enjoyed the championship week edition of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer. As always, feel free to send me an email. My email address is areamer at bu.edu. Also, feel free to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at alexreamer one So long, everybody. Thank you for listening. Feel free to leave a comment on our show page on footballnation.com, as many of you did last week. As I said at the opening, it's great to know that I'm not talking into the abyss. So long, everybody. Enjoy your week. Enjoy the games this Sunday. Should be spectacular. And we'll be back to recap it all and talk a little Super Bowl next Wednesday. So long. Talk to you next Wednesday. Looking forward to it.